You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our scripture today is from Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the very ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper found for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that made the Lord and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, "This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Good morning. We are in Genesis. Go ahead and turn there with me. Genesis chapter 2 as we continue our study through this amazing book. Uh, so what we've seen so far is that God creates a world for man. It's a gift to man for him to enjoy and for him to subdue and exercise dominion over God's humanity, his people, are those who live with him, who enjoy him, and then are sent forth from his presence into the world to be a blessing to the world. Or in other words, God's humanity are those who live in this garden reality right now. Where Adam was at, uh, the reality that, laid before, that was before him, life with God, life on behalf of God, that's our reality now if you are a Christian. We are back in the garden moving outward into the world. Uh, But then verse 18, read with me in your Bibles. It says, The Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 20, The man gave names to the livestock, the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. And so God and Adam both have this realization that there's a problem in God's good world. It's that he is alone. So God's solution to this problem is to create woman and then institute marriage. So today we're studying marriage. As many of you here who are dating, or seriously dating, or engaged, or just married, or even married for a while. And so today is for you. This is a sermon that is towards you and where you're at in life. It's going to be good for you. But also, I know there's many of you here who are single today, and you might be tempted to check out. But I want to tell you that Uh, Today's sermon is really important for you, too, if you're single, for a few different reasons. Uh, First, everything you hear today, you need to take the principles that are discussed, the theology that's developed, and put them in your back pocket. Because you need to know what to look for, you need to know what to strive for, you need to know what standard you need to hold yourself to, and the person you're going to marry to. Second, you need to ask yourself the question today, how does the Bible's presentation of these complementary gender dynamics impact me as I'm in Christian community. Many of the principles, the truths that we discussed today also apply for just living in community together. 
We're talking about selflessness today. We're talking about other people being a part of our formation. Uh, so if you're single and you're in this community, much of what's dis- discussed today does have relevance for you. So I encourage you to listen up. And let me also lastly just pastorally say to singles and families, married people, everyone in here, if this teaching is to be beneficial to single people in here, the way that this helps our brothers and sisters who are single is by actually spending time together, married people and families with single people, so that the ideas that are discussed today actually take on flesh and blood reality before people as we're in community together. And so these are just ideas. In our community, we got to work these things out together and teach one another by embodying these ideas. So we're going to talk marriage today. It's going to be really good. I have a lot to say. And there's four points, all right? We're going to find out one, the purpose of marriage, the purpose of marriage, Second, the dynamics of marriage. Third, the commitment underneath marriage. And fourthly, the power behind marriage. Purpose of marriage, dynamics in marriage, commitment underneath marriage, power behind marriage. So let's first talk the purpose of marriage. Again, God observes Adam. He sees that Adam is alone in verse 18. So he states, it is not good that the man should be alone. We're going to talk about the word alone here. He says, I'll make him a helper fit for him. So why was woman created? Why was marriage of the Institute of Marriage established? It was to solve the problem of loneliness. And so here's what we've discovered so far. Adam, he's supposed to work the ground. He's supposed to build out this temple city, expand the borders of this garden and the city into the world. He has this great, great enterprise before him. He has a great destiny before him. And we might say that he has no one to share it with, no one to support him in this, but here's the thing. Like, he has God, doesn't he? <laughs> That's a pretty good relationship to have uh, you know, with you as you're doing these things, this enterprise. But here's the interesting thing. Still, in this perfect world with complete access to God, the missing piece was human relationship. So that's why God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Fit for him. It literally means a helper who corresponds to him. So it's not that life with God was insufficient, but there is something better than life with God. Life with God together. Life on behalf of God together. So Adam moves out now into the world with God on his right his wife on his left. He has someone that he can share his life with. Uh, I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for my education, and so I, sometimes I still get their updates, their newsletters in my inbox, and recently the president there, Al Muller, he celebrated his 30th anniversary of being the president at Southern Seminary, and they made this cool little video about him that documented his time there, and when Muller first went to the seminary, it was this uh, it was a super liberal, confused seminary, and so he came in uh, and brought order and brought conservative theology back into uh, the seminary, and for the first two years of his time there, it was just miserable. He was meeting resistance on all fronts, uh, intense opposition, and so he was talking in that video about his first two years there with all of this hard, difficult work he had to do. And Rebecca and I were watching it together. I remember this. This was years ago in a Starbucks. And he was talking about his marriage during those first two years of his tenure there and how he said his wife was an ally in the fight. 
and we're both watching this tearing up because it resonated with us so deeply. See, the gift of a spouse, it means that we have an ally for life. It means that we have an ally in, in, in the fight. We have an ally in the enterprise. Each one of us are called to live on behalf of God as we make our way into the world, and a spouse is an ally in this great enterprise. And so what's the purpose of marriage? To have an ally. Second reason for marriage, though, that we see in verse 18, I want to read it again. God says, I will make him a helper who corresponds to him, right? Uh, A helper fit for him or corresponds to him. I want you to think about what that word means, corresponds. Uh, This means more than just someone who accompanies him. Imagine two different pieces colliding together to make a complete whole. That's what it means to have someone who corresponds to you. Someone who's very different than you, but yet you collide together and you're one now. So to have someone who corresponds, it means that we're interlocking with someone When another person's invited to interlock with us, to intertwine with us and have access to us then and influence over us then, you know what happens when we have someone who corresponds to us and we're interlocked and intertwined? And married people are going to say amen when I say this. Profound transformation will occur. Profound transformation is what happens. So there's a few different phrases that describe someone or, or the effect of what happens in a marriage when you have someone who corresponds to you. Someone different than you colliding with you to make you a whole. Here's what happens. Uh, We are expanded. Marriage expands us. That means our perspective, our perspectives and personality and wisdom and humor broaden and deepen as another draws them out of us. Marriage supplements us then. This means our inner being with all its thoughts and feelings are now paired with someone who can interpret those things for us our weaknesses are partnered with another set of strengths. It's like we have a new resource of intellect and will at our disposal. Marriage challenges us. The parts of us that are immature and unrefined are confronted by another. Marriage heals us. The parts of us that are broken and hurting are soothed by another. Marriage strengthens us. The parts of us that are insecure and atrophied are emboldened by another. And marriage diminishes us too meaning the parts of us that need to die and be buried and never see the light of day are exposed by another. This is what happens when we have someone who corresponds to us. They draw these things out of us and they pour themselves into us. So all in all, what someone who corresponds to us does is they round us out and they enrich us. They expand us, right? The New Testament will call this sanctification, Or the New Testament might call this Christ being formed in you or be conformed to the image of Jesus, being renewed day by day, renewed in the spirit of your mind, becoming the new self. That's how the Bible talks about sanctification. So marriage then is one of the key ways that God helps accomplish our great quest in life, which is to become more like Jesus. That's the purpose of marriage, to, for someone who corresponds to you, to help you become more like Jesus. So when you get married, you're agreeing then to partner together in one another's sanctification. You're agreeing to invite your spouse 
to nurture Christ in you through their unique personality, their background, their passions, their strengths, their giftings, and even their weaknesses are a part of making you more like Jesus in marriage. So marriage is this lifelong quest of formation, arm in arm together. So the idea of you know, finding the one and finding your soulmate, it's not biblical. That's not in the Bible, okay? So marriage is not about finding the right person because there is no such thing as the right person because you're gonna marry someone who's going to sanctify you, is gonna challenge you and expand you. Marriage is about finding someone who's committed to your sanctification and who's committed to their own sanctification then. Marriage is about finding the person who cares about your formation and their own formation and is committed to that lifelong quest together. So therefore, mar- marriage, uh, <laughs> rarely does it feel like um, you know, just we're clicking and we're humming and we're moving on all cylinders. That's not usually how it goes. Marriage feels more like figuring it out with someone who's different than you but intertwined with you. So marriage's purpose is to form us, it's to give us an ally in the fight. So your spouse then, listen, your spouse is a gift, not a burden. Your spouse is your ally, not your enemy. Your spouse is to your benefit, not your detriment. Everything about marriage, it's for your good if you understand that the purpose of marriage is to have an ally and to have someone who's going to be part of your formation. So here's the question I want to ask you then. Do you consider your spouse as a gift? Do you think like that? Do you ever stop and give thanks to God for your wife? Give thanks to God for your husband? If you find yourself complaining and frustrated more than anything, I'll tell you this. Your problem is not actually with your spouse. Your problem is with God because this is his design This is what he's up to. This is why he created it, to have someone who's going to be with you in the fight and someone who's going to expand you and enrich you and round you out. Your problem is not with your spouse. Your problem is with God's good and profitable design. So that's the purpose of marriage, ally, formation. Uh, So the question now is, how does this play out? Like practically, you as a man, you as a woman, husband and wife, in marriage, together, how does this go? What's everyone's roles? What's everyone's responsibilities here? So let's talk the dynamics of marriage. I'm a little nervous now, okay? <laughs> here we go. Uh, here's what I want to do. I want to start with husbands first, uh, and then I'll go back to wives in verse 18. I'm going to read the rest of the passage, talk about husbands, and then go back, because uh, husbands, you need to understand that you're the leader of your, of your marriage, that God has called you and appointed you to be the leader in your marriage, and so it all starts with you. It starts with you. So you gotta know what your expectations are from God. So let's go to verses 19 and 20. Like your wife, what she's gonna do is gonna be a response to what you do. So you gotta get your house in order. You gotta get yourself in order. Verses 19 through 20. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, not every bird, of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to the livestock, to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. So that the activity you see here in verses 19 and 20, this is Adam exercising dominion. Remember in Genesis 1:28, go, be fruitful, multiply, yes, fill the world, yes, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Here's Adam, who's exercising dominion over the created order. 
He's naming the animals. And remember, back in Genesis 1, God named the heavens, God named the sun, God named the day, God named, God named. And now Adam is naming. Like, so literally, Adam is the image of God, right? He's doing as God would do. He's representing God in his ruling. He's taking his cues from God. So you need to see here that Adam has this position of leadership and authority over the created order. He's exercising it over the animals by naming them. Now we continue on in the narrative, 21, 22. So the Lord God, he caused a deep, sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now what you need to see here in these two verses is is that Adam is out. He's uninvolved. I mean he's totally and completely passive to whatever's going on here because God puts him into a deep sleep. And not only is he passive because he's out, but God, it says, brings the woman to the man. So when you read this, everything you see here is Adam's uninvolved and God does everything. Which means this, okay? If Adam's asleep and God brings the woman to the man and Adam's done nothing, that means that the woman, a wife, is a gift of total grace from God. So a wife is not earned, she's entrusted. In fact, uh, you know, the woman's creation and presentation, it's because God's compassion is aroused when he sees man alone, and then he meets that need with this gift. So, so I'm just I'm saying all this to reinforce that she is a total gift to meet a need. In fact, seeing the woman as a gift that Adam has done nothing to earn, that's just given to him, it should remind you of something very similar that we've already seen in the story, which is the Garden of Eden. Like the Garden of Eden, God caused it to spring up from the ground. It was created fully. Uh, it, it grew out fully. It was this full, thick, beautiful, botanical garden sanctuary gifted to Adam that God placed him in. He did nothing for it. The same exact thing happens now. Adam does nothing. He's completely uninvolved. She's given to him as a complete gift. So it's like the woman, his wife, is his own personal Garden of Eden. And just like the garden was a gift of renewal that he would tend to, so she is the same. So she's a gift to him. But also, um, God's bringing to the woman is similar to how a father brings a bride down the aisle, right? This is where we get this imagery from. This is why we do this in weddings, because God brings the woman to the man. He's, it's like God's officiating the first wedding. And so what's happening when a father hands his daughter off to the husband-to-be? What's happening in that moment? It's a transition of responsibility, right? So God's bringing this gift called woman to the man, saying she is yours now. Care for her well. I'm entrusting her to you. She's a gift. Treat her as so. Treat her as such. And I want you now to notice that Adam does not miss any of this. Like, Adam knows exactly what God is trying to communicate. Adam does not miss the point. Because remember, God brought the animals to Adam, and then he named them. God brings the woman to the man, and then he names her in verse 23. He says, this is woman. He names her. And so just as Adam exercises dominion over the animals by naming them, here he takes leadership. He takes responsibility for the woman by naming her. But, I also want you to notice that there's a massive difference between the kind of leadership that Adam exercises over creation 
and the leadership he exercises over his wife. Because when he names the animals, he just does it. Quick. We don't, we, not a lot is said. He just does the task. It's done. But with the woman, he lays eyes on her for the first time. In verse 23, what does he do? In your, in your Bibles, look there. It's literally a poetic stanza. He sees the woman and he breaks out in song over her. Verse 23, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. This is Hebrew poetry. He breaks out in poetic singing over his wife. And so what does leadership look like? It's not, it doesn't look like naming the animals. It looks like cherishing his wife. It looks like delighting in his wife. What we see is a tender, celebratory headship that is full of adoration and love. A wife is a gift. Adam sees it, knows it, responds accordingly. And so do you treat her like that, husbands? Do you treat your wives like she is a gift from God that you cherish and delight in and celebrate with tenderness? I I, uh, read a quote from a pastor that I follow, and he says this, because women are so rarely cherished, they often settle for being occasionally desired. Husbands, if you don't love your wives like this, like the gift that she is, celebrating her with tender love, you will drive her into the arms of another. And that could be sorrow, that could be the other, or it could be another man. And so the call to be a leader is to cherish your wife. That's the kind of leadership that a godly husband exudes. And this is why Ephesians 5, like the the paradigmatic passage on marriage and gender dynamics, Ephesians 5, it tells husbands five different times, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Love your wives. Five different times. It doesn't say lead your wives. Like we know that that's happening because of Genesis chapter 2. We know that's the role. But what is it characterized like? What is the experience of being led by a godly husband like? It feels like being loved. Love your wives. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Here's what love is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, adores all things. If you were to settle your mind on those few verses for a while, what you would find is there's this theme that's uh, threaded throughout the entire thing, throughout each one of these statements and each one of these characteristics, and it's this, that each one of these things uh, require death to self. Each one of these things requires a husband who is loving his wife to absorb the cost of that transaction. Love gives and accepts the cost of that gift. Love separates the self from the equation. Love is not about me. It's not about what I get. It's about what I give so she can get. It's about using my position as a leader for her benefit. Now think about what I just said there. In marriage, a husband who's a godly leader, who's loving his wife, what he does is he uses his position for her benefit, for her advantage, for her blossoming. What does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus. 
exactly what he did, leaving his position of glory in heaven, coming to the dirt in the incarnation, and then dying on the cross for our benefit, which is exactly why Paul says in Ephesians 5 also, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know what Christ did for the church? In Ephesians 5, Paul says he gave himself up for her. He sanctifies her. He cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, which is healing, soothing language. And so if you love your wife like Christ loved the church, you give yourself up for her. You sanctify her. You heal her and mend her and soothe her wounds. Again, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, knowing that she is the weaker, sorry, excuse me, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers may not be hindered. So what does leadership look like in a marriage? Using your position to honor her to bring to reality what is theologically true, which is that she is a co-heir with Christ, with you. you now, in the Roman Empire, you have to remember, women were suppressed. Uh, women, women had no rights. So Peter is saying to this patriarchal society, these men, that your wives are equal to you in God's eyes, so use your advantage to her advantage. Otherwise, your prayers will be hindered. God will not honor you if you do not honor him. And the first place that starts with a godly man is in his marriage and how he leads his wife. So the Bible teaches clearly, clearly, clearly that husbands are to be selfless and put their wives first. And so, you know, Ephesians 5 says, wives, submit to your husbands. You might not like the word submission, but listen, it's a joy to submit to a person who's committed to using their position for your best interest every single day time. Right now, uh, there's this movement in our culture around primal masculinity. Uh, This movement says that men have these primal instincts. They should be realized, things like work, things like sexual desire, which, here's the honest truth, work and sexual desire, the Bible's really positive about. These are good things. But this primal masculinity movement tries to mesh the best of Christian masculinity with basically Nietzsche. No restraints, no limitations. And what it ends up doing is promoting nothing more than a moralized version of toxic masculinity. So Andrew Tate uh, is one of the voices of this movement. I saw a clip of him recently where he said, men should be permitted to commit infidelity because for men, sex is emotionless, but a woman's infidelity is worse because it involves emotion. That is a seared conscience. That is a desensitized spirit. I hope he never gets married. I hope he never has a daughter. This line of thinking, though, it's not just him. It's not just the primal masculine movement. It's pornography. It's marketing. It's entertainment. Women are seen as assets for man's pleasure. Today, a man is someone who gives nothing and gets everything for his own pleasure and self-realization. And so the call to Christian leadership in the home for men is really, uh, it's a counter-resistance against a culture that's lost its way. Let me be clear, Christian husbands, then. Leadership is not you steamrolling your wife and being obtuse and getting the final word so you get your way and then call it leadership. Your wife is submitting to you and following you. Your wife submitting to you and following you does not exist for the purpose of enabling you and puffing you up and helping you get what you want. Leadership 
is death to self for her sake. It's striving to not self-actualize, but to self-deny. So look, husbands uh, and wives, there will be times when God calls you, man, to pioneer something, to take a risk, to stick your neck out there and obey God. And your wife, you might have to ask to follow you. But if you have not been dying to yourself so that she blossoms and so that she is safe, she will have a very hard time respecting you and following you. But she will respect you and she will trust you and she will follow you if you've demonstrated over the course of time that underneath all your decisions and all your thinking is her best interest. There's this biography on Alexander the Great. It recounts this one instance in India. After years on campaign, Alexander the Great's men threatened a mutiny. Uh, they were worn out. They wanted to go home. And Alexander, he called an assembly with this potential uprising at play. When the army had gathered, the young king stepped forward, and the story goes that he stripped himself naked before all of his army and he screamed to them, these scars on my body were gotten for you, my brothers. Every wound, as you see, is in the front. Let that man stand forth from your ranks who has bled more than I, or endured more than I for your sake. Show him to me, and I will yield to your weariness and go home. And what happened is not a man came forward. Instead, a great cheer arose from the army. The men begged their king to forgive them and their want of spirit and pleaded with him only to let them move forward. Wounded in the front from leading in the front. That's your call, Christian men, in your marriage. So show me a man who's tired and exhausted from working all day, being present all night when he gets home. Show me a man sacrificing freedoms and wearing the same clothes year after year, refusing the convenience of eating out all so he can save money for his family. Show me a man who has porn blockers on his devices so he refuses to compromise, gets up early, takes care of the kids so his wife can get some much-needed sleep, offers to run an errand, says no to a great thing because it's not the right thing for his marriage. Show me a man who's the first to apologize, first to take the blame, never shift responsibility or blame or point fingers, but falls on his sword without expectation of anything in return, and I will show you a man whose wife respects him, follows him, and trusts him. Wounded in the front from leading the front. Look, here's the honest truth, everybody. I'd rather have the respect of my wife over any amount of success or achievement on earth. Because why gain the whole world, but the real you at home in your marriage is someone that the person who knows you best can't respect? So men, leadership, it's dying to self. It's singing over your wife in thanksgiving to God for his great gift. It's a high, high calling. Now, wives, go back to verse 18 with me. Your part's crucial. It says this, The Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I'm going to study now the word helper. Okay, what does this mean? Uh, the word helper is hezer in Hebrew. It, uh, helper is probably not the best translation for this word. Because when we read the word helper, we think it means merely assisting someone who could do the task almost as well without any help. But the Hebrew word hazer, it's 
almost always used to describe God himself. Other times it's used to describe military help, reinforcements, without which a battle would be lost. So man is alone in this enterprise and it will not work. This enterprise will not move forward unless he has a helper. And by helper, we mean a strong and necessary aid like God himself, like military reinforcements who will win the day. And just to reinforce that this helper role language does not imply inferiority, does not imply weakness, I want you to think about verse 21 again. Go to verse 21. Where is the woman taken from? His side, his rib. Now, why that detail? Why is that so important? One commentator I read says that this, the, this is why that detail is important. Because woman's not taken from man's backside to show she is behind him. She's not taken from his nose to, to show she, she is before him. She's taken from his side to show she is with him, equal to him. A counterpart who comes alongside and helps her husband realize his great potential. Without you, wife, your husband's potential will go unrealized. And the enterprise will not be realized. So men, look, we, you know, we have a high standard, but a husband cannot rise to this great standard with humility and courage and diligence and self-denial without a wife. You, Christian wife, are God's chosen me- method of developing your husband into a man. So I'll let you on a little secret, uh, wives. Inside every man is a scared little boy that controls him. All that he does, there's a scared little boy inside of him. So think about conflict. Usually, men shrink away from conflict. Now, why is that? When Rebecca and I were first married, uh, she would ask me to uh, talk to someone about something important or make a phone call and dispute something, dispute a charge maybe. And a week later, she'd ask me, hey, did you ever have that conversation? Did you ever follow up on that? Or did you ever make that phone call I asked you to make? And I would sheepishly say, no. Why? Why was I like that? Why are we like that? Because underneath it all, I was a scared little boy who didn't want to disappoint someone, rock the boat, or feel guilty for inconveniencing someone else. I wouldn't do what she needed me to do till like the deadline was upon me and I had no other choice. You know, men procrastinate. We're really good at procrastinating. But it's not because we're lazy. It's because we're scared. It's because we're fearful. We don't think we're capable enough, smart enough to handle business. Or we're afraid of trying and failing. And so some of you here might not resonate with that. Like men, you might not resonate like, with that. You might not shy away at all from conflict. You might love conflict. But the scared little boy inside of you is still the one driving it, who needs the attention and who needs to be affirmed. So look, wives, we need your help. We need you to be our necessary aid. We need you to help develop us beyond this scared little boy inside of us who just wants to have fun and never try anything more than what's safe. I'll tell you another secret, wives. Uh, You have higher emotional intelligence than we do. Is that a secret? I don't know. You have higher emotional intelligence than men. Emotional intelligence means that you're acutely aware of what you're feeling and you don't suppress it and you don't deny it. And because you're in touch with your inner life, 
you're alerted when something is wrong or when something is off. Men, we got zero emotional intelligence. On our own, we have no idea what we're feeling or why we're feeling what we're feeling. Someone will say something really harmful, really disappointing to us, really hurtful to us or offensive, and we'll smile and continue on. A week later, we're like depressed. We don't know why. It's because that thing's been living in our bodies and our inner being for so long, but we don't know it's there. We need your emotional intelligence to rub off on us. This is the beauty of the Bible's complementary vision for men and women. Wives, you help your husband grow in awareness of what he feels, why he's feeling it, so then he can identify the lie he's believing deep down that's sabotaging his ability to lead your marriage. So wives, realize the power that you have and use it wisely. Your husband, he needs you. I'm telling you, he will not realize his God-given potential without you. His leadership of your marriage, it depends upon your necessary aid. You have to nurture the God-given potential within your husband. You have to use your superpower of emotional intelligence not to overwhelm your husband, but to help him, to guide him, to help him realize all that he is in Christ. So husbands, let your wives be a blessing to you. She's God's gift to you. Don't resent her words. Don't despise her. Don't refuse her guidance and help because you'll never reach your God-ordained potential of biblical masculine leadership without her necessary aid. She is God's water on the seeds that has planted in you to have the, the potential to blossom into a strong oak tree. Okay, so men, some of you desperately want your wives to follow your leadership, I know. But you're not letting them be of any help to you and any aid to you because you're too fragile and arrogant from insecurity to let her help you become all that God wills you to be. Let your wife be a great resource to you. And wives, let me encourage you too in something. You should be your husband's biggest fan. You should be his biggest believer. When all other support fades, there you are in his corner, strengthening his resolve. You know, I'm telling you, like, I don't really care about what anyone else thinks of my sermon but Rebecca. That's just God's design. A wife has the power to reinforce a husband's resolve to help him step into his God-given destiny as a man. And so wise, perhaps the reason your husband isn't leading strongly, isn't leading courageously, isn't confronting as you'd like him to be is because you're so critical of him. Nothing, I'm telling you, nothing wounds a man's soul more than his wife tearing him down. Nothing kills a man's creative energy more than a wife's discouragement. Nothing will make a man feel less like a man than a wife who does not respect him. And nothing will create a more defensive and stubborn man than a wife whose critical spirit makes him feel like he must be on guard at all times. And so wives, I'm not talking right now about enabling a man and contributing to some sort of fragile, toxic masculinity. I'm talking about calling out the best in your husband instead of discouraging him. Proverbs 18, 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. 
you, wives, have the power of death and life by, by the words you speak into your husband's life. And it's no coincidence that the very next verse is this in Proverbs 18. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And so, wives, you have the power to speak death or life into your husband. And listen, <laughs> there are times that your husband does not deserve your respect. There are times when it's going to be hard to respect him. But credit him respect anyway because you're freely given respect, your gift of respect, it will make him respectable. You will form him into a respectable man by your free gift of respect. And here's what happens while, while you do this. As you help your husband realize his potential through your necessary help, powers of love, powers of grace will be drawn out from you in the same sort of transformation that your husband is undergoing, you at the same time will undergo yourself. You will become a dignified, strong woman of God. And so, husbands and wives, we need each other. That's the Bible's vision for marriage. We need one another just as much as the other needs us. And so in, a, in an age of fierce independence, which produces narcissism, God's vision of codependency in marriage, it produces this deep formation, transformation. And in an age where we think love, romance, and marriage is about happiness, what we find out in Genesis is that marriage, above all, is about our holiness. And we are most happy when we are most holy. If you can step into this vision for marriage, walking together through life arm in arm, helping one another be all that you can be in God, there will be a day where husband and wife, you arrive at the throne of Jesus together and you look at one another and you say, wow, you're stunning. Look at you. I knew you could always be like this because we're partnering with God and who he is making the other to be the other to be through our whole life together until glory war. He will finish the job. So uh, these dynamics, really tough, right? This is hard. And so what we need is some things underneath this purpose of marriage and these dynamics of marriage that are going to help us step into this vision for marriage. And the first thing that we need is a commitment, there's a commitment underneath marriage. Look at verses 24 and 25. Moses, he breaks off. You thought I was going to close the sermon up. No, we're going to keep going, all right? <laughs> he breaks off the narrative. And what Moses does is he inserts his own commentary now. Look at 24 and 25. He sees the beauty of marriage. He writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we see in Moses' commentary here, is commitment. That's, that's all that he's saying here. And so first, to leave a father and mother, okay, means you're releasing, it means you're releasing all you've known and how things have worked. And when you marry another person, you're leaving one family unit, one way of thinking, and you're starting from scratch and building something new. You're leaving one family unit and starting another 
And so the first thing you're committing to in marriage is not insisting on your own way and what's comfortable to you and known to you. You're committing on building something new from, a, from the ground up that's custom to the two people in that marriage, in that new life together. So there's a commitment to clean slate. Second, then a man shall hold fast to his wife or cleave to his wife. The word hold fast or cleave, that is covenant language. That means promise. That means marriage ceremony. That means legal union. Moses is talking about the marriage promise before God and others. I think today marriage is thought about as a contract. What do you get out of this and what can I get out of this? We're in this for mutual benefit. But biblically, marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant. It's about what you pledge to regardless of what happens from here on out. So underneath this allyship, underneath this formation and dynamics in marriage and figuring out how it all blends together, there's a promise, a covenant, pledge, legal promise that says I'm staying. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere before God and others. I make my vow. So there's a bedrock underneath marriage of covenant promise. And then look what happens next they shall become one flesh. The husband and his wife were naked and not ashamed. They're one flesh. So this obviously refers to to sexual and physical vulnerability, but we should read this and see that this means total vulnerability, financial vulnerability, emotional vulnerability, uh, all kinds of vulnerability. It means complete access to one another, sharing of one another together. And listen now, God's wise. God has a reason for why this is the pattern for things because it's not safe to become vulnerable to each other without covenant first in place. You'd have promise and covenant underneath the relationship before you become exposed to one another. Here's what happens when we live together, build a life together apart from marriage. What you end up doing is you just test drive one another. And goodness, this produces nothing good in the other person, in the self and in the other. It produces nothing but fear of being enough. Am I enough? Performing to acquire, treating the other as a commodity for my benefit without having skin in the game. It's like test driving one another without purchasing the car. The wisdom behind God's design, why he requires us to first establish covenant before we ever build a life together, is that this reinforces the gospel. I am not loved because of what I do, because of what I bring to the table. I am loved first, then from that place of abundant security we build together. We do. We respond. So the commitment underneath marriage is the pledge that I love you before I know all of you. That's what this means. I am choosing to love you, sacrificially commit to you before I know all of you. Now I know that sounds risky, right? That's really risky. Well, here's what I want you to do. Pick your risk. On the one hand, you can risk loving someone that you don't fully know, which is committing in marriage, or you can be known and be vulnerable without ever being loved without ever having somebody pledge to you themselves fully. The commitment of marriage means then that I am both fully loved and fully known. 
And it's that covenant and promise that's gonna sustain this ecosystem that's called marriage and formation and allyship that's moving out into life together. There's one other thing, one last thing that you need to step into this vision for marriage then. It's not just the covenant because even then, (laughs) sometimes that's not enough. We need something deeper, something more powerful than just a pledge that we make. We need a unique power for a marriage. And so husbands, here's the honest truth. We have failed our wives and we will still. And wives, here's the honest truth. We have, you failed your husbands and you still will. There will be times we are sinned against where we sin against one another. But for each of our failings as spouses and shortcomings in our marriage, Jesus has an answer. The gospel of Jesus, if you believe it and live in it and meditate on it and preach it to yourself and let it become your lens for how you view all things, you will have a unique power surging underneath your marriage. And so listen, have you sinned as a spouse? Jesus has forgiven. So we forgive one another. We can't withhold forgiveness if Jesus does not withhold forgiveness. After all, are we better judges than Jesus? Psalm 51, David says, against you, God, and only you have I sinned. And so in marriage, when we sin against one another, the more ultimate person we're sinning against is God himself. And so if God has forgiven our spouses, we must forgive our spouses. Matthew 6 says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Luke 7.47, a woman breaks an alabaster jar over Jesus' feet and anoints his feet in oil. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What Jesus is teaching there is not that our forgiveness and our love somehow earns God's forgiveness, but our love for others, for our spouses, our ability to freely forgive our spouses proves that we have been forgiven, that we've been touched by the gospel. So in a time where people have long memories, a running list of grievances and gripes, and we live in this cancel culture, Christian marriage can be a haven of forgiveness and reconciliation, but only if you first acknowledge that Jesus has forgiven me that he has separated my sin as far as the east is from the west, as far as the heavens are from the earth. And when you've been touched by that forgiveness, you freely give it out to your spouse. So have you sinned against your spouse? Have they sinned against you? Jesus has forgiven. We ought to forgive. Next question as we close here. Do you keep sinning as a spouse? (laughs) Well, guess what? The good news of Jesus is that he has justified us, which means he has declared us righteous. Romans 6 tells us that we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus because we have been justified. The gavel has been slammed down and we are innocent. That's how God sees us now as the very righteousness of Jesus. Husbands, do you look at your wives and consider them how God does? righteous, blameless, perfect in Jesus. Wives, do you look at your husbands and see them how God sees them? Righteous, blameless, perfect in Christ. If you are able to see your spouse how God sees them, then you can help them become what they already are. 
And so as we sin and mess up in marriage, Jesus has forgiven us, we forgive one another, he's justified us, and so we look at one another the way that God looks at us, we hold one another to that consideration. Third question, are you unhappy right now in marriage? Is marriage hard? Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has united to us. He's united to us. Every marriage has difficulty. Every marriage is hard. Now, why is that? Why is there no perfect marriage? Why is every person in here who is married and is going to be married going to be disappointed? It's because the perfect marriage won't happen here. If you find desires for your marriage in which your marriage cannot satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that you were made for a more ultimate marriage. And this marriage will one day take place in glory We have four tastes of it now as we walk with Jesus. And so in the meantime, husbands and wives, be united to Jesus. Draw from him your satisfaction and happiness. Do not put a level of expectation on your spouse that she or he cannot fulfill. The desire is good, that God-given desire for a perfect marriage, but the object is not your spouse. The object is Jesus. Singles in here. Don't make the mistake of settling, of bypassing a rich, deep relationship with Jesus because you're frantic about getting married. Don't settle. Don't compromise. You may be lonely now, but you know what's worse than being lonely now? Being lonely in your marriage. Don't settle. Don't compromise. Are you still unhappy in your marriage? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is coming back and he is returning. Revelation depicts the day heaven and earth are united as a wedding day. We, the bride of Christ, will arrive at our wedding day to our great groom and all our, long, all our longings will be fulfilled. The best times of our marriage now, they're just a foretaste of the glory to come. The hardest times in our marriage They're just a reminder that I'm heading towards a greater union. And so if we can view our marriages through the lens of the gospel, I'm telling you, you will have a new power to step into God's vision for marriage. And I'm telling you, if you equip yourself with the truth of the gospel, you will realize all of the wonder and joy and happiness in your marriage. So husbands, your wife is a blessing sing over her, love her sacrificially, take responsibility for her well-being. Wives, your husband can only be the leader you long for him to be if you partner with God in his formation and what he's doing in him. Respect him, encourage him, stand by him. And as you do, you will blossom into a woman of grace and dignity. God wants each marriage here to be incredible and transformative. And I'm telling you, because of the gospel, he can do it. He can make your marriage incredible. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.